If you've ever found yourself researching COVID-19 on YouTube, it's likely you've stumbled onto a well-spoken Irishman named Ivor Cummings, dissecting the impact of the pandemic with detailed graphs and analysis. Before the COVID-19 era, Ivor Cummings, a biochemical engineer, had a large following as a presenter on cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and obesity on his very popular website called The Fat Emperor. However, since the outbreak of SARS-CoV-2, Ivor has dedicated his analytical skills to the pandemic with a series of in-depth YouTube videos commenting on the response of public health experts, calling into question many government policies as well as conventional wisdom. Ivor, it's truly a pleasure to have an opportunity to speak to you. Thank you. No, thank you, Duan. No problem. Ivor, you had a very successful career and a very large following in obesity. What drove you to take on COVID-19? Why the change in direction? Yeah, well, I was working on all of what you mentioned there. And we brought out a movie a couple of years ago about heart disease and the calcium scan of the heart and how to prevent heart disease. So I'd spent, you know, eight years on metabolic research and modern chronic disease prevention. So a load of that stuff. And then in March, I didn't take uh, too much notice of the SARS-CoV-2 thing that was developing. I was so busy. Uh, My wife and others were really nervous, and I looked it up, and I saw the Chinese initial data, uh, which was, you know, 10 times risk if you have metabolic disease and, you know, the aged were affected. And I saw the Diamond Princess, and I looked into their numbers. You know, the people are all on the Petri ship and kind of compressed into a 10 times the density of New York with shared air conditioning. And for me, I looked at that and I saw the actual fatality and the ages. And I said, okay, it's going to be a real nasty one, but it's going to be the very aged overwhelmingly and metabolically, you know, unwell uh, and immunocompromised. So probably going to be really tough, but not much worse than a severe flu season. And once I decided that, I I didn't overly look at it because I was so busy. Uh, But then the lockdowns kind of started coming in at the end of March in Ireland. And Italy, I began to see all the things going on there. And Italy, it was 98.6% of the sad passings uh, had comorbidities. The average age was in the 80s. So looking at Italy and the heat they were under, I suspected they had a lot of aged um, metabolic um, kind of dysfunction, which they do. They're the vitamin D black spot of Europe. Um, And I saw that the numbers and the demographics were what I I had predicted. Uh, So again, I didn't get too concerned, but then the lockdowns all came in. Now, I didn't agree with those from my perspective and from looking into transmission of influenza, that they would have much effect once your seasonal trigger occurs and you're into your epidemic. It's kind of too late uh, to try and stop it spreading. Uh, but because they were sustained and when they would not stop the lockdowns after we'd passed the curve and the ICU was coming down uh, for a seasonal illness and the deaths were coming right down, they clearly didn't want to take the lockdowns out. Right. They brought in a four-month plan to slowly take out the lockdowns. And I thought, but but this is gone for the summer. Yeah. And And I got so concerned at the way they were behaving and the WHO clearly wanted lockdowns. And the lockdown technology had come from China, not a great source. Uh, I got more and more concerned. And then I began to research it deeply. 
and got drawn in heavily. Now, this is interesting, boy. There's a lot there to unpack. <laughs> Let me start first with the Diamond Princess, because you bring that up. Now, what's fascinating about the Diamond Princess, and you're right, it's a Petri dish. It's our first experiment with good, robust data. Johnny Anitas from Stanford did a very, very solid analysis that got published in STAT. And I remember reading that, coming to the similar conclusions that you have drawn just now, saying, okay, you have comorbidities. Everyone who um, was susceptible and passed was over 70 years old, high rates of obesity, very specific condition that we need to control. Okay. And then four days later, Neil Ferguson's analysis comes out of Imperial College saying there's going to be, you know, multiples of more death. And all of a sudden we start following this lockdown strategy. How do you think we got to that point compared to what we saw in the hard data out of the Diamond Princess? Yeah, that, that was the thing that shocked me. That drove all of the rhetoric of lockdowns and the actuality of lockdowns. So yeah, the Diamond Princess, at the time it was around eight or nine people, I think, out of the 3,700 on the ship. Yeah, And uh, it turns out in the end, yeah, there were late 70s into the 80s were the ages. Uh, pretty much of the passing. And the people who did not pass, there was 0% mortality rate in the non-aged. Right. You know, in the Petri ship. So I I, I looked at the time and I was approximating a 0.1 or 0.15% maybe and heavily stacked towards the aged. So I just couldn't understand Imperial because if there's 60 million people in the UK and you apply that, you might you might say 60K and heavily in the aged who have, sadly, they have less time. So the quality adjusted life years going to be lost will be nothing like the Spanish flu and nothing even like the 1957 flu, which hit people much younger. So I just couldn't understand it. And there were a lot of rumors at the time about who funds Imperial College and Neil Ferguson and all the times he got it wrong before. And it always seemed to be hysteria from him. But I couldn't believe they all they all followed them. But that's what happened. And it was not peer reviewed. And it was only a modeling document, which we found out later was using ancient software. And it just seemed so bizarre that they all followed them. But they did. But again, the real story is that Neil Ferguson is part of a kind of a network, if you will, of technologies and corporations and uh, foundations that are all linked back to the WHO and pharmaceutical industries. And again, you can't claim foul play, but conflict of interest is conflict of interest. And the funding there was very questionable. And it was quite clear that the WHO had taken, I call it China lockdown science because- The party line, essentially. Yeah, they had taken it straight from China. And we have the video now. There's a great video explaining the origins of this that I only got last week. I can send the link for this podcast. Please. But a lovely American or Canadian lady goes through the history and has all the clips. And you can see the WHO senior person showing the Chinese Gompertz curves, which we now know are natural and they happen anyway, uh, showing them and saying, look, China did this and saying the world, you have to do this. China have, have led the way. So it directly came from China, CCP, uh, the WHO blessed it and told the world, this is how you need to do it. So we know where it came from. And then when Neil Ferguson came out with that and talked about half a million dead, if we don't do this kind of stuff, then everyone, I guess, just said, oh my God, we'd better do it. I mean, is it as simple as that? One of the things you've done then is you've unpacked 
and I find this work really interesting. You've gone back and done a lot of research on the previous opinions of the CDC and the WHO about how to handle pandemics, looking at the other influenza outbreaks from 68, et cetera, where you've gone through and said, well, here were the recommendations before and here are the recommendations now. Can you tell us about what you've found when you've gone through and looked at the data and done the research about how these recommendations have shifted over the SARS-CoV-2 outbreak? That's a that's a kind of an almost a crazy thing because we've just said the WHO took a single data point. They looked at Chinese curves, made the assumption that what the Chinese were doing had made those curves be thus and be small and decided we need to do that. But in November, October, November 2019, they published their latest pandemic management guidelines, big document. And in there, under social distancing and such like, they clearly not recommended, not recommended multiple times in the area of isolation of exposed individuals. Now, what that means is no isolation and containment of people who may have been exposed. They recommended symptomatic you know, which makes sense. And on the test and trace, they said there is no evidence for test and tracing being functional or useful after a virus has broadly entered a region or a population. You know, it's something you do when you've got a couple of cases that came in off a boat and you maybe try and contain it. Like by March, when the lockdowns were happening, we knew that the first people had been sick in Europe, like in January, And maybe as early, we know now, November, it was in circulation. Now, there was probably dormancy, you know, but it was in in circulation for months. So to do lockdowns when the thing is kind of all over the place, it broke every rule in the October 2019 guidelines. And those were based on not just influenza. People sometimes say, oh, but that's not uh, coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. No, but They share all of the core things you'd have guidelines for. It may be more transmissible. uh, It may be more impactful, but it doesn't change the guidelines of how you manage it. But they got rid of all of that and forgot it literally overnight. And we have to remember, based on only one single observation, and observational data is very weak, even if you do a study, because you're only seeing correlations, But they took one single observation, not even multiple, and it was China did this. Ergo. Those curves not too bad. Lockdown made curves not bad. Yeah. We're off, guys. That's it, like. And after that, the rest is kind of history because once people started doing them, there blossomed this enormous belief that they had helped. And then after that, There was an addiction to lockdowns, like the only thing you could do. And then masks came, which is... Well, we'll get into the mask issue in a bit. Yeah. But, um, you know, yourself, Dr. Wilfred Riley, quite a few known epidemiologists as well have come out and said, look, you know, lockdowns don't work. WHO itself reviewed its policies and even came out in late summer, early fall and said, no, 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 don't lockdown. The U.S. military published an article in New England Journal of Medicine basically saying we don't advocate lockdowns for the U.S. military. Why do you think that we're still stuck on this strategy, given everyone has revised their opinion and say, look, this this doesn't work? And also, you have a lot of data comparing countries that have locked down and not locked down. Can you empirically tell us what you found? And also, why do you think they're sticking to their guns, as it were? Yeah, well, whether lockdown works, uh, it's not that lockdown does nothing, because 
it'll do something. Anytime you do something that kind of crazy, something will change in the world, including maybe in transmission, etc. But in terms of empirical, I noted early on, and I was actually a friend of mine who's non-technical, nothing like me, kind of an accountant type. <laughs> and he said to me in April in Ireland, he said, Ivor, is this thing completely kind of crap in a sense? And I said, why? Have you been watching my videos? Because I was raising the possibility then that lockdowns don't really do much and that the impact was not what was being said. And he said, no, no, I never watch your stuff, which was true. <laughs> and the way he worked it out was actually basic logic. So he said, well, this is in the epidemic, right? And it's all over the media morning, noon and night. He said, but I don't know anyone who knows anyone, nearly who knows anyone who's died, except there's one person in a nursing home. So he said, what kind of epidemic is that? And then he said, on the lockdown stuff, I like shopping, which he does. But a lot of the stores have been closed, non-essential. So he was going around all of the food stores that also sold other things because he had a habit of shopping and he kept going in. And he noticed that no one in the stores, even the older guys and the obese guys and, and women, no one was dying. No one was getting sick. And he asked them, he began to ask them, hearsay, anecdotal, but he began to ask them and they all said, no, no, nothing's happened to us. And then the data came out to show that the people working eight to 10 hours a day with no masks back then in the actual epidemic, mixing with all the unwashed people coming in, they had no extra infection or death. So he realized the lockdown, they are not locked down, those people. They're super exposed and there's no signal. The lockdown can't be doing anything substantial. So he actually worked out in raw logic, and it turned out he was largely correct. That is the logic. And then when I looked at all the countries with Sweden, no lockdown, and other countries with lockdown, and did myriad comparisons, and looked at the East with Tokyo with no lockdown, um, and looking at some other countries in the Far East, I realized there's no correlation. And then Pandata were one of the first, a panda organization from South Africa, actuaries and, and other people came together seeing what we saw and they began to do proper analysis and they published a paper showing 51 countries, stringency of lockdown versus deaths per million. And it was a shotgun plot. And I mean a, a simple shotgun blast. There was no relationship. Completely random. Yeah. And then Woods Hole Institute came out and looked at the whole European epidemic and said there is no connection between lockdown, stringency, and deaths per million. And then another one came out, and then another one. And then I was very happy because I thought, okay, I've made my cut based on empirical, based on historical science, uh, based on everything. Lockdown is, is just not the thing to do. It makes no sense. But I was delighted to see now there's papers being published by proper teams doing proper scientific analysis, not my kind of, I'm busy guy, I do basic analysis. But what happened was there's now 30 papers approximately, including Ioannidis, including one in Lancet. In its abstract, it says there's no signal connection between lockdown, lockdown severity, and deaths per million across all the countries. Uh, so Stanford, there's Birmingham, there's Edinburgh, there's Woods Hole, there's just so, so many. German University, I think, in Hamburg. All of these analyses, all saying essentially the same thing, that the curves turned before the lockdown came in in many cases, and as a result, 
You've got countries where a lockdown happened to come in when the curve was turning. You've got countries where the lockdown came in after the curve turned. And you've got countries that came in even later. And you have every kind of option. And when you analyze them all, there's no signal. When you argue against around 30 papers that have done that, you know, you have to ask yourself, Professor Karl Popper famously if you find a negative piece of evidence that's pretty solid against a hypothesis, the hypothesis is dead. It's dead. If you have 500 pieces of evidence supporting a hypothesis, it doesn't mean the hypothesis is true. So negative evidence has a vast power compared to positive affirmatory evidence. And no one's thinking this. If there's 30 papers saying lockdown doesn't really help much, you just cannot ignore them, but they are ignoring them. Yeah. They're not even producing many papers to say that lockdown works. I mean, the biggest one that gets quoted is from Imperial College, Niall Ferguson's guys. A professor in Germany debunked that completely within a week, Yeah, right? Stefan Humberg, I think, a mathematics professor and, and a colleague. And they basically show that that paper looked at around eight or nine countries, and they included Sweden. So now you're thinking, wow, if they included Sweden, Sweden proves that lockdown doesn't work. So how did, how did they get around that? And what they did basically was, the conclusion of the paper was, all of the massive draconian restrictions were what caused all the benefit in eight countries. <laughs> and Sweden then, limiting crowds to less than 50 and basic distancing caused the same amount of benefit. <laughs> they, that actually was the paper, and that's been quoted all over the place. And of course, Professor Homburg demolished it. Like you're talking about papers that are clearly absurd up against around 30 papers that are, are very reasonable, but no one cares. So then you're to the second part of the question, why does no one care about the evidence anymore? And then you're into, I think, two effects. One effect is local in each country. Each country got into a panic put in lockdowns, perceived that they worked, and the terrible thing didn't happen, and that strengthened their belief that they worked. They didn't know about seasonality and that that was clipping the epidemic. So they presumed the lockdown was doing it. They also seem to not know that those epidemic curve shapes have been going on for hundreds of years, millions of years. It's the nature of the viral blossoming and triggering and then it goes through a, a curve and seasonality comes into it and uh, immunity in the community and uh, multiple factors. But those curves are classic. They seem to forget that. And they're also copying everyone else. So there's a me too. So Ireland's looking to UK. UK are doing a lockdown. Oh my God, we better do a lockdown or we're going to be responsible. And then France is looking at Spain. They're all looking, they're all doing lockdowns, but, but they all forget where the lockdown came from. And I'm sure if they really understood that it came directly from the Chinese Communist Party through the WHO making a single observation and saying this is good and abandoning their guidelines, if they really knew that, they might have said, hold on, guys, now, are we sure about this? Yeah. But it became, I don't know, like a massive group think. And then I'd say when it began to be realized that maybe these things are not so great, you got to cover your political self and you can't start saying it lockdowns are not so great uh, because then you're culpable for the damage you cause the economy and everyone else. So you can't go backwards. So I think they got trapped. And the last thing I'd say on that is, yes, all the governments got trapped in groupthink. They became almost psychotic. 
The people became psychosed by all the propaganda from the government to tell them, stay safe, get under the bed. And then the people began to demand back to the government to make them safe. So they almost began to ask for lockdown. So that, that's a whole psychosis. But at the top, there's a lot of organizations. We can't get away from the fact, highly conflicted, highly influential organizations who have massive international influence on governments like the World Economic Forum, like all these foundations, like the UN itself is, is capitalizing on this crisis and they've admitted it. And the WHO is, of course, benefiting massively to its prestige and power. So I think all of these big international organizations with hundreds of corporations as their members, like in the case of the World Economic Forum, they've around 500 top corporations as their partners. That's a lot of influence. And all of those are helping push the psychosis. They're not directing it, but they're certainly fueling the psychosis on the ground in the country. It, it does bring into question the motivation around the quote-unquote big reset uh, that everyone is talking about. And when you read and when you see people presenting about it, it does strike one like a Bond villain. You expect a Nehru jacket and a Persian cat. Um, I'm a big fan of Occam's razor. I'm also a big proponent of Hanlon's razor, which is uh, incompetence is usually <laughs> an answer more than malice. And I do think that there's just been gross incompetence in this as well. And obviously, maybe some people are trying to take advantage of it. But getting to the uh, Hanlon's razor, the incompetence part, <laughs> let's let live drilling into that a little bit. You know, yourself, you're a biochemist. Your background's in, more in engineering. If we look at Wilfred Riley, he's a social scientist, but with a strong statistical background. If you look at John Neonidas at Stanford, they're sure they're epidemiologists, but they're also very strong statisticians and mathematically founded. Uh, if you look at Martin Koldorf at Harvard, obviously one of the big advocates for the Sweden strategy, he is well known as a very strong analytical statistician. It, does it seem like the public health people didn't look at this with the analytical bend? And those of us who've been delving into the numbers with more of an analytical side have been saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, well, what's going on here? Do you think that there's sort of a rift now about a lack of rigor in some of the analysis that's been thrown out? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think to your point about the razors, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a catastrophic miss, mix of stupidity and malice. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, there's malice from the organizations that are very influential. And from the get-go, there was reporting in March saying we will never go back, be going back to the old normal. And I remember hearing that and just not understanding how on earth can you say that before this thing has even transpired? And they were all saying it. And I said, where's that come from? And I honestly didn't understood. Now I found out later where it came from, sure. from Schwab and the WEF and the books and all the stuff that was actually published. But my main thing is problem solving, which involves, of course, logic. That's Kepner Trago is, is nots for hypothesis testing, and also hypothesis for against evidence tables, uh, which I actually designed myself 20 years ago for the corporate I was in, and we use them ever after. But you put down all your hypotheses, and you're very brutally clear in your diction of what your hypotheses are, because you might have 10 in a complex multi-factor problem, a big one. And you have lots of different hypotheses, and you must rack and stack them with the evidence for and against with data and links and then you've got to rise the most likely hypothesis to the top. So that's, again, logic. And then mathematics, of course, the numbers is, is where the answer is. Like the diamond princess. I mean, that's just a simple example. Sure. It's in the numbers. Like, that's where the answer. you got to put aside emotion 
I know it's very sad when there's a bad virus. People die, people suffer. But you have to say that's the virus's fault. You must separate that in a compartment from your brain because you're here to do the best intervention to optimize public health, societal health, and, and overall societal freedoms and important things that are beyond life and death our fundamental freedoms and the strength of our democracy. These are principles. These are almost, you know, we fought wars in the past for principles. Millions and millions died for principles. These are not small things. So yeah, numbers, mathematics, and logic is as important as the virology I began to research in April and the immunology, because I always make sure I'm well-versed in all technological vectors in a problem. Uh, but I agree with you. It's it's the math guys and the logic guys. And it's Professor Sunetra Gupta in Barrington. She's a mathematical epidemiologist. Yeah. Go figure. Her actually outfit in Oxford University, they were working on COVID-2, SARS-CoV-2, this virus, and getting immunological um, responders and, you know, laboratory work. So she's mathematical epidemiologist and she's involved in the virology. That's why all these guys were much closer to the money. But I think a challenge is in an enormous complex problem, myriad facets, even the best guys will not get everything right sure. predicted right. So now we're seeing in Europe the seasonal resurgence we knew would come and we flagged it. We always said it will not be a Spanish flu 1918 second wave. That was the second wave terror, always referring back to this famous second wave of 1918 that hit and destroyed them. We said there'd be a winter seasonal resurgence. And probably we and they underestimated somewhat the severity of the seasonal resurgence. But it's within the same envelope. But you're seeing a lot of screeching now from the people who fell in love with lockdowns who see that they can attack the skeptics and are all using predictions to attack. Sure. And it's very telling because if we're broadly 90% right on the dormancy, on the severity, you know, on the transmissibility, on the overall impact and all the important science, but say we predicted the winter should be half a percent excess death, but it's turning out to be 0.9. The other guys are saying, it's by nine. Yeah. The hospitals are overrun. So, you know, that's happening at the moment in UK, Ireland. If you look at, say, how Florida has responded compared to the UK, what do you find in your research? How do you think they've compared? Because Florida basically has been open since September. There was a big spike and then it curved over and it's sort of been flat in Florida. And now you're seeing a big spike in California, but it's the first one. How are these expected? And how do they relate to the research that you've done about historical averages? Yeah, so oh, that's a big question. But if you just start with Florida, yeah, that's a key example. I've been giving it the last months ago and even recently because I keep going back and looking and it's the same answer. So DeSantis dropped all the lockdowns and the masks and got rid of the whole lot because Professor Michael Levitt and I think Caldorf and others, they had a conference call and went through the data. And he's a smart guy, apparently. I don't know him. And he said, okay, no, this ends now. And their mortality curve had come down from a hump. They're a region that's southern U.S. that behaves more like Mexico in terms of viral triggering or, you know, those countries. So they're different than New York. That's more like Europe, where you get a big, sharp curve in the winter and another spike in the following winter. They're completely different. The curve came down, but it was still substantial deaths per million. So 
the virus was all over the place in Florida. It's not like it had gone. And they dropped all the measures. So, of course, if lockdowns worked, they go straight up within weeks. And now it's nearly four months and they've languished and bumbled along. And that's in a state that has a quite elderly population. Yeah, one of the highest aged populations in the United States. Absolutely. Yeah. So that single proof, as per Professor um, Karl Popper, that single negative evidence, which is powerful because it's real and it's screaming in our face, on its own would cause everyone who supported lockdowns to have to go back in the room, (laughs) get a coffee, go back in the room and rethink everything. One piece of evidence that's negative is powerful. It has to be explained. But as we said, we've got myriad. But anyway, California then, which had been locked down lunacy for a year at this stage, they at the same time start rising up. So Florida is there and it stops it all and nothing happens. And California rises and overtakes them in the midst of increasing draconian lockdowns and mandatory masks on every man, woman and child. So again, there's your answer. However effective lockdown might theoretically be, it clearly cannot be substantially effective. It can't be because of that data. And that's the tip of the iceberg because North Dakota, South Dakota, they both have same population density. And a month or two ago, they both got a viral trigger. For whatever reason, they spent 50 years trying to understand why the virus triggers. And you can't know when except winter for flus in Northern Europe and coronaviruses or end of winter. Uh, but they never found out why it triggers. But North Dakota and South Dakota, same population density beside each other, perfect match. One of them puts in mandatory hard mask mandates and restrictions when the curve starts rising up and South Dakota does nada. The two curves are superimposed. There is no difference. So we have many, many of those direct compares as well, including in Denmark. In Denmark, they took seven municipalities. This was published two weeks ago, did a study. Seven out of 11 municipalities, they locked down ultra hard and four, they did not. They were just doing their generic distancing. The curves were the same in both when they started. They rose together similarly and they curled over similarly in all 11. (laughs) And the team said, basically, whatever people think lockdowns are doing, you'd better read our paper. Sure. And they also quoted a lot of the other papers I quoted. And they're just saying, look, we're not biased. We expected a big bang for the book. We got nothing. Yeah. That means someone's not thinking on this. If you look at Tennessee and Minnesota as well, Minnesota has been quite locked down, been a bit more aggressive, certainly more than Tennessee. We do a lot of work at our firm with Vanderbilt University. I spent a lot of time in Nashville. They were getting hammered. Mm. But it was about the same as Minnesota. Tennessee did not implement hard measures. Minnesota did. And yet the curves look almost identical. It's very strange that yet... We still insist on alchemy on some level, really. It's a bit strange. Well, (laughs) Professor Michael Levitt said back in February and since then, he didn't get all his predictions right because, again, he's an example of what I said. They're attacking people now based on their predictions. However, the predictions are what you do to test the science and just to try and project and guess what will happen. Many people who have the science 10 times more accurate than the experts, like Levitt, we'll still get a prediction really wrong because, I mean, Levitt originally didn't know anything about seasonality. Sure. So he made an assumption that when the event happens, it happens. But he didn't know that the season cut it short 
and you're due the second half of the epidemic next winter. Right. So there's lots of stuff that even the great guys, in fairness, they miss. But I always say they're 80-20 correct coming from their own research. And the authorities are roughly have been 80-20 wrong yeah. on masks and on lockdowns and, and, and all this, and dormancy, seasonality, everything. The WHO denied seasonality in late July in Europe when we had just seen the seasonality wow. explode in terms of collapsing death rates. Yeah. And we could see it everywhere else as well. And they, they came out with a bulletin and said, there's no seasonality with this coronavirus. <laughs> I could not believe it. Levitt did say medieval science. So he says we have regressed to medieval level superstition based on China, WHO and lockdowns. It is literally medieval level. So I'd agree. That's where we've gone. It's rabbit's foot stuff. There may be some strength in lockdown in giving some advantage, but other papers show with very good modeling that if you succeed in reducing the impact which are lockdown, you will pay with more COVID deaths. You push it forward. In the next winter because you, you lack immunity and you're healthy. So even if they work, they don't work. I'll just say one more thing. Sorry, Duane, because it's just something I, I realized last night looking at a short exploratory video, an animated video. And it made the point that of all the deaths in your country for the year, there are only a tiny slice of your people in your country. And then the slice due to COVID, even fully crediting it, is the thinness of a pencil line on an eight, on a sheet of paper. The numbers are, I know it's tragic people dying, but the numbers relatively are tiny. If it's around one in a thousand will pass with COVID and the average age is 80. I know there's younger people, but the average age is 80. And there's relatively few life years lost. One in a thousand people, it's not huge. Now, if lockdown was 20%, effective in helping, you change that to 0.8 in the thousand. In other words, lockdown, if it was effective, and, and we skeptics said, okay, we'll allow you that it, it pulls things down by 20%, maybe. That's two in 10,000 people at an average age of 80 will have their life extended somewhat on average. Now, imagine someone come to you at the start and said, look, I want to shut down your society for around a year because I have a personal health mission. And there's around two in 10,000 people out there in your society. And I want to extend their lives by six months, maybe each. My method is I want to completely destroy your economy, your society, your freedoms, your schools, your theaters, your sports. Uh, how you travel, your holidays, uh, your job. I want to create mass unemployment like never before in history. Uh, I want to do all of that to extend the life of two people out of 10,000 of your society uh, for a period. What would we have said to that person? Would they get out of the room without being put in a padded cell? <laughs> but that's the numbers. If you think about it, two in 10,000 at an average age of 80 having an extension in their life. And for that, the whole of society gets vandalized and destroyed. Last April, we ran the quality calculations for Spain, Italy, and Germany. And we concluded that you were buying 65 million in quality with about 15 billion a month, which is a, which is a bad investment. <laughs> it's a very, very bad investment. Yeah, an Israeli study put 
possibly for the quality saved, uh, you were talking $4 million per life year saved. Uh, and that was just going from the data. Yeah. That's if lockdowns kind of worked. But if lockdowns don't work, God knows what the number is. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. So if you look at the shutdown of Orange County, California, we ran the numbers over the last five years, incorporating growth and looking at a 5% uh, confidence interval. Um, you know, you're looking at uh, essentially uh, close to a trillion dollar shutdown in Southern California for 1,500 potential deaths. Now, yes, every one of those deaths is a tragedy, but my God, that's an awful lot of economic activity you're putting at risk. It's an enormous amount. It, it is, and there's the economic uh, determinants of, of societal health and physical health uh, alone sure. uh, will blow that away. But you're right. I mean, you're talking, people might not realize, we do judge the value of life because in the UK, for many years, it's around 20,000 per quality adjusted life here saved by medication. And if uh, a medication may save a year and it costs 40,000, you don't do it. So technically, you are killing that person a year early because you are not paying for that medication. Correct. So we do it all the time. But this time we decided it's not 20,000 per age of life saved. It's like maybe a million. Yeah, if not more. If not a lot more, I'm being very fair because we know the lockdowns hardly work and we know the qualities are very limited. And we know they cost enormously. So let's say instead of 20 grand, we've suddenly decided as a society, we did have 20 grand and that was our guideline. So that's a real figure. We're now going to spend 50 times or 100 times more per aged quality adjusted life you're saved. That's a huge decision. I would have liked to see a vote on that. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And you also mentioned you know, the rate of death in the average age. If you look at the UK numbers, and I did yesterday before our call, 90% of all the deaths are 65 years or older. And again, every one of those is a tragedy. We're not saying it's not. But why would we not then construct strategies that would then protect or at least try to isolate those people who are 65, but then let anyone who's 64 and under go off and have a life? You know, why have we not done that? It just doesn't seem to make sense to me. It's It was being talked about even by the authorities, and then a, a darkness came over the world, and then suddenly it stopped being talked about, but without any reason. But it was being talked about by many authorities and governments, and then it went quiet. And when Barrington came out, it, Barrington wasn't just questioned. The Barrington Declaration along those lines was attacked with a violence that I've not seen. It was incredible. So clearly the system, whether it's the top guys influencing or the psychosis of the governments themselves covering their ass politically and defending what they'd done by continuing it or something, whatever it was, the system had clearly developed antibodies against any logical path forward. We should probably mention the Barrington Declaration. It's uh... Uh, Chakabari from Stanford, Gupta from Oxford, and Martin Kuldorf from Harvard. So, I mean, and these are three of the top epidemiologists on the planet who came forward and said, no, we should be doing a herd immunity strategy. And at a certain point, you're right, the reaction was extremely vociferous, particularly in the UK. But at a certain point, it became almost heresy or an attack almost as being a heretic. It went beyond science because you didn't hear any mathematical or statistical arguments against what they were saying. In fact, if you look at Sweden, even today, Sweden still has, on average, a much lower death rate than Belgium, France, 
Italy, certainly, Spain. Sweden's much lower death rate, even though they've been quite a light touch, even now, despite the king coming forward and calling everyone stupid. The fact is, the death rate in Sweden is still lower today, right now, per million. Why do you think this is becoming more of a religious argument? I still have to say there are tops down, extremely powerful influencers, and many people in governments are engaged with these tops down international organizations with very powerful desires that have been building for 20 years or more. And it's all documented, but we won't go into detail. So I I think there's huge forces there and it's just a reality. It's it's almost like it's just business (laughs) for them. It's business. It's kind of sounds a bit crazy to us to want to a new ant farm type world and get all these passports and surveillance and controls in. But to be honest, for those guys, they believe it and they just think this will be a better world and we'll all focus on zero carbon and we'll have stakeholder capitalism so (laughs) we can more govern the world and the country's governments will become more like middle managers. And to be honest, it all makes sense if you're that type of guy or gal up the top. So there's all that force. And then there's psychology too. I think many in the government's you know, maybe realizing a crawling unease that they may have misfired on all of this. And the problem is then that going to alternative paths and having them work, that's going to show up that we were wrong. Sure. The media are going to say, well, why didn't we do this the first time? That's a very dangerous road to go. So people would say, well, I don't believe that politicians and the body politic would protect itself even if that meant continuing to cause more harm. And I think those people are naive. The body politic will protect itself at any cost. Sure. Once it can't get caught, (laughs) right? But if everyone's doing this stuff, no one can get caught. But the whole thing is you need to keep it going. You need to keep the policy going until we're out of this. And then you say, hey, it worked. Yeah. But if you stop the policy and go to a smart policy and that works, now you've got a major issue. And I think there's also a driver that the magic bullet was always the vaccine. And after countless billions, now it's coming. There's no way you can let this thing switch to herd immunity right. with the vaccine coming. Sure. And the last one I'll say is a psychiatrist. I know she thinks that many people may have a subconscious realization that this may have been wrong. And ironically, it causes them to double down with vehemence. No, but we have to save people. The lockdown worked. It's almost defensive. It's like, no, the lockdown worked, but it's because deep down there's a fear. There's a fear that maybe the skeptics are correct. Well, well, that's also a trait of sociopathic behavior. And if we look at what happened with Gavin Newsom in in California, where he was caught red-handed basically going to the French laundry, then he puts in the most draconian measures yet. Then all of a sudden, everyone else doesn't get to do that anymore. Yeah, I saw that stuff. And I just said, I love California. I lived there for a year in San Diego. I've been there many, many times over the years. And it just, it, it saddens me too. I see these places around the world that I know, and I've traveled in across Europe, and you see this this incredible draconian madness going on. And you just think, you feel sorry for them. And then you remember, well, it's all around me too. It's everywhere. It's it's like I was transplanted from a relatively sane planet and just dropped into a crazy planet. And you have to get used to it. I have to pinch myself every day for the last 12 months on this. Uh, Every day I get these moments where for a split second, I think this isn't real. We're not all in masks going around. And then I, I realized, no, it's real. And then I, I just have to go back to work. It's surreal. No, if ever there was a use for the word sur- surreal, that's it. And just in terms of Newsom, 
Do you see the tweet streams where they show all of the authorities who've been caught breaking all the rules? Yeah, I know. It's terrible. Like they go on for 30 or 40 tweets of photos. The Irish media, top media people were caught having a big party with elderly people and they're all hugging and taking photos in the middle of a hardcore lockdown. And they all had to apologize. But that shows you, you know, by people's behaviors, even top people. And Neil Ferguson went and slept with someone else's wife twice in the middle of a lockdown. The other guy, Cummings, the big driver of lockdowns, he was caught cheating and driving up and down the country in his Range Rover. So you kind of know that they know that this is crap at some level. They know it. That's the way they behave when they're not being watched. And yet they go out in front of the camera. You've got to hide under the bed. So I'd say they know they're lying at some level, some level. We've talked a lot about lockdowns. You've also done a lot of work looking at the historical perspectives about masks, you know, and about what the recommendations were of the CDC and the WHO again before COVID-19. There was also the very famous Danish, legitimately a controlled study of 4,000 subjects that, you know, 2,000 wearing masks, 2,000 not wearing masks. That's sort of gotten memory hold when that came out in November. It's like, oops, that's not the answer we wanted. So we're going to forget that. And you've done a lot of work on this on your site, Ivor. Can you... Just go through some of the history and then what we're doing now. Yeah, uh, for sure. And the masks, I started off and people are criticizing me now saying, you you were promoting masks back in April. And I was. <laughs> and there were two reasons. One, there was these laser interferometry studies, which were quite impressive. And they cho- showed people sneezing and all the droplets. And you know, they were quite beguiling and impressive. And the other thing is I hadn't yet researched the history of masks. I didn't realize that 40 years of Western science has said pretty much if there's an effect, it's not worth bothering with for influenza, which is the same kind of transmission. Yeah, the, the particle sizes are virtually identical. So Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're the same. And I've got another real subtle one at the end, but just on masks. So I had not yet researched them. Uh, But I was willing, based on Taiwan and Japanese documentaries and the laser interferometry showing the particles, you know, in the room, I was willing to roll with it and say, you know, this is a tough virus, so why not? Um, And also I saw it as a defense against the madness of lockdowns at the time. So I thought, well, if you're going to consider locking down, well, then just do the mask instead, right? Because that's going to get around the same result, if any. You're not going to lock down everyone and ruin the economy and ruin ruin society. So that was another driver. But then what happened was, of course, they did lock down. They wouldn't stop locking down. Everything went insane anyway. And in the middle of the summer in Europe, where I had said to my wife, by May or June, this is going to be gone until next winter. Mark my words. There's no way they can keep this nonsense going to get all the way to October. So I said, out in October, the coronaviruses rise and we're going to see impacts. But there's no way they're going to keep this going until then. They can only start up this lockdown talk in October. They're gone. And then they brought in mandatory masks in early July. ICUs were empty. Deaths were gone, as I said. But they found a way to bridge (laughs) to the winter. And the way was to bring in mandatory masks by law and have everyone be reminded they're in an epidemic, even though they were not. The epidemic was over. And that and other silly stuff got us through to October, where you started to naturally see the virus rise, and it's the dominant virus. So in a nutshell, the mask science over 40 years gave the answer insofar as you can in science. Uh, Don't bother with it, guys, because 
Sometimes it shows a little benefit. Sometimes it doesn't. It's null. And if you're going to overturn 40 years of Western published science, you'd better have the best RCT in the universe proving that all of that was wrong. You know what they had? A couple of rubbish associational studies, no merit. And that was it. They brought in laws and overturned 40 years of science. So the mask is very analogous to the lockdowns. It's jettisoning 40 years of your culture and history and scientific work on a topic, completely flushing it down the toilet and doing a couple of quick studies and associations and saying, oh, we think these are good. There, put it on, boy. You know, it's a law. Put it on. And that really got to me because I realized they could now bridge to the winter. Sure. The last thing on, on that, the flu has disappeared. I don't know if this is one of your questions. The influenza rates are very interesting, yes. <laughs> so when I saw it first for Australia and New Zealand, and there was all this talk of, oh, the flu has gone too because they've done amazing hygiene. I knew that that didn't make any sense. But I said, okay, it's a contrary piece of data that suggests their hygiene and, and stuff distancing has made a big difference. But what I found out after a while was that the flu has disappeared everywhere. And this is where it proves me correct. So what I've got is countries like Sweden with no lockdown, no distancing. And I have endless people in Sweden saying, look, work at home, this and that. But the kids are in school. We're going to parties with the kids. Right. We get our hair cut. There's no masks. So let's be honest, Sweden did not lock down and actually was extremely lax. We know they had the right deaths per million that they should have, if you account for all the other factors. But on the flu disappearing, Sweden's flu disappeared at the end of February as well, disappeared. So that's a single point of incontrovertible proof that the flu disappearing has essentially nothing to do with lockdowns and masks. Yeah, It's a 10 and a half million people, flu disappears, no lockdown, no masks, and the flu disappears. That means it's over. Now, the reason it disappears is complex, and it goes back to the work of Dr. Hope Simpson, and it's called in virology, the vanishing trick. And essentially all the viruses communicate and there are points in history published where a flu strain that was around for years and years characterized every winter, a new strain comes in demonstrably different, and they notice the other one disappears. In some cases, never to ever come back again. And it's only in a laboratory that it's stored because it's gone from the host. It's gone. So this vanishing trick happens. They don't understand it properly. But overwhelmingly, if you take the example of Sweden with disappearing flu and flu disappearing all over the world and not coming back, and the other coronaviruses have all dropped too, they're all similar families, it looks like SARS-CoV-2 is pretty special. It's very impactful, very virulent, very transmissible. And it seems to have done that viral interaction deactivation trick on a lot of other families of viruses, including flu. But rhinoviruses that are quite a different family, they're worse this summer in Germany with restrictions than they were last year. In other words, rhinoviruses are unaffected. So the lockdowns, the masks are doing nothing for rhinoviruses. Yeah. That proves it's not the lockdown and mask. It's a viral interaction. And I think, Duan, the bottom line in this is the viruses in the virome are vastly more complex in reality than the simplistic people <laughs> of saying, I spit it on you, he spits it on her. It's everywhere, it's complex, it's got dormancy, it's profound, 
And that's why all the studies show no response for things you'd expect to help. You don't understand what's going on, I think. I think that's the problem with the experts. If you had the ability to make one change now, if there was one thing you think that would be impactful, if there's one thing we could do against COVID-19, what do you think we should do? If the masks aren't working and lockdowns aren't working, what does work? Okay, and I said this in March casually, and I said it very, very powerfully in April when I saw how things were going. If you take your elderly population, get their vitamin D levels up, you know, get the magnesium, selenium, and various other things that will assist in their metabolic health greatly, get them out of the sun, whatever, and you start feeding them nutrient-dense foods rather than the gruel that's fed in many care homes, you know, the modern low-fat junk diet. Uh, if you did all of that, a combination of things, uh, you're going to dramatically change the impact of this virus in reality. And for the vast majorities of effectively diabetic middle-aged people, some of whom have gone down hard, they could fix their insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes physiology, within a matter of days and weeks. Their metabolism could be vastly better uh, to get a much less severe outcome when catching the virus. I mean, I could list them out, but if you went in and did a massive push to improve metabolic health in the aged and, and even middle-aged uh, through those things and others, you would dramatically change the impact level and you'd you bring it down to the point where you would no longer have this huge problem. So everything I would say about fixing this would be related to the host, to, to bring up the health level of the host. That's the way. That's, in engineering, if we had this problem coming, let's say we were making humans and we had a quality problem where a certain percentage were, were failing, that's what we'd do. We wouldn't lock down all our products and shut down our lines and just, you know, we get fired you would get your product quality improved to, to make the impact of the problem be much lower. That's the way to do it. And the second thing I'd add is, of course, the sheltered Barrington-type approach. If you added that as well, and you tried to get it through, you're under 65, fairly healthy, to get the community immunity that then would protect the people you could unshield, that would be magical. That would be a magical combo. But we did zero off that. And you know the irony, Duane? The people who terrified the population all summer long in Europe where nothing was happening for four or five months and threatened them with 1918 flu, second waves, which are much huger than the first. All of the authorities doing that, guess what they did to actually help with the problem when the winter did come? Guess how much preparation they did, roughly? Zero. Zero. So again, like, yeah. like all the people getting caught breaking all the rules, it kind of tells you where they are really at. And the fact they did zero cross-training of fleets of medically capable people who would be rapidly trained over three months to act under ICU nurses. I know you can't create ICU nurses in three months so easily. I know there's a lot of training, but you could add a fleet of people capable of acting under the auspices off your fleet of ICU nurses and other professionals. So if the third of them were home sick or with a positive test when the winter came, you'd still have staff capacity. And they had, in Ireland and England, huge capacity with hospitals that were built for the first epidemic. They took them apart and they trained no staff. So they took away all of the facilities and all of the potential staff they could have had. They were gone before this winter. And when we got to the winter, what happened? They started screeching 
and locked us all down instead of preparing for it. And now they're not saying that the deaths are huge, actually, in Ireland and England. Not really. Uh, we'll find out what the death rate is, but it may be like a particularly severe winter, but we'll see. They're actually all talking about the hospital capacity is the reason we're locking you down now. Right. Which they did nothing. Correct. To expand even by 30%. If they had got 30% of auxiliary staff, right, 30% of facilities, which they'd already done anyway, and they took them down, they would have had the capacity and the staff to manage it. And everyone would have pulled together like the war. Everyone would be able to work away, keep the economy going, keep granny safe and, and care for everyone. But no, just wait, sit on your thumbs and then lock down your whole country. That's what they did. Remember, Ivor, it's only going to, it's a 30 days to get the curve down. Remember, that's it. <laughs> Two or three weeks to flatten the curve. Two or three weeks. That's it. And then a whole year to flatten, not the curve, but the economy. Yeah, exactly. And everything. Population, health, freedoms, everything I mentioned earlier. Ivor Cummings, the Fat Emperor. Ivor, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, please keep in touch and hope we can do this again sometime. Super. Thanks to all. Bye now. This Vital Health Podcast has been brought to you by Pharma CCX, an independent third-party technology platform focused on improving patient outcomes. They help both sides of the negotiation reach access agreements more efficiently so that patients can get the complex therapies, including combination oncology, they need to survive. That's Pharma CCX.